Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. Grant McCracken is an anthropologist trained at the University of Chicago and the author of a number of books about American culture. He is teaching a culture camp in May and, I've been told, trying to build a time machine. Grant, welcome to The Filter. Thank you very much. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm happy to have you on. Our topic for today is your latest uh, book to be published. I know you have another one coming out in about a year, but this is the latest one out so far, and it's the new Honor Code, A Simple Plan for Raising Our Standards and Restoring Our Good Names. And I should say I highly recommend the book to my audience. It's one of those rare books that's easy to read, genuinely funny at times, but also uh, had me filling up the margins with lots of my thoughts and notes. That may be in part because honor is a topic that fascinates me. I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast and in my Substack blog. Honor, though, is also one of those topics that's hard to talk about because notions of what constitute it seem to differ widely. Could you start us off with your own interpretation of that term, and to what extent do you think it aligns with other people's views of honor? Right. Yeah, I'm talking about, uh, I'm trying to build a very stripped-down morality here. I'm not trying to reinvent the moral wheel. I'm not asking people to undergo a philosophical transformation. My notion is honor is a beautiful idea if we treat it simply as an internal matter of self-respect and externally as a measure of the extent to which we are seen by our communities, variously defined, as having contributed to some collective, some common social good. So what makes for honorable versus non-honorable actions or honor in a person? How, how does one evaluate that? The measure, actually what got me thinking about the book in the first place was the extraordinary amount of dishonorable behavior that we see, especially in, in the celebrity world, where, where we see people not only behaving uh, badly, but doing so without apology and, and sometimes without any sense that in fact they have misbehaved, within, without any sense that in fact they're not entitled to act as predators. It's, uh, it's a kind of endemic uh, or an epidemical condition. And, and my idea was, well, if, if we can just create a shadow of a doubt that prevents a predator from, from striking, we will have done something. And as I say, I'm looking for a very small, a light uh, moral compass, if you want, that can sit cheek by jowl with all of our other philosophical and cultural enthusiasms, just simply a way of asking people to think about the implications of, of what they're doing from the point of view of other individuals and, and larger collectivities. Towards the end of the book, you define 10 elements that you see as, as core to this uh, honor code. And I'd say I'd break those up into ones that are more internal and ones that are more external. And I, I had, think I have a fairly high level of alignment with the internal ones as far as I'm 
I have a lot of ambivalence towards the concept of honor generally, but I don't have that much ambivalence about it as a personal code or credo or your own individual way of living that you find honorable, though then I think it gets a little bit more tricky when we start to talk about what that looks like externally. Do you, do you see that as a possible way to kind of divide these two up? And then what does it look like in terms of distinguishing internal versus external honor? Yeah, I think the external piece is more difficult, not least because it just depends upon the participation of lots of people in a fractious time where, you know, everybody has their own concept of what the world should look like. But I guess I was, actually, one of the sources of the book was uh, a neighbor who lives a couple of doors away from me with whom I would go walking. And as we would walk, he would point to the Little League diamond that he'd had a hand in creating and and, and various institutions, including a, what we used to call an old old folks home that he had helped manage. Um, so over and above his, uh, his career, he was making these contributions to the life of my community. It's, it's, it's 3,000 people roughly. So I thought, wow, this guy is not, this guy is doing honorable things invisibly. I had no idea that he was so active. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice if there were some way of giving him props, as we say, somehow acknowledging his contribution to the world. And uh, I thought, you know, this is what we talk about reputation economies online all the time. I thought maybe this is a job for a reputational economy offline in the world where people see the efforts, um, acknowledge the efforts of, of people around them and give them a certain respect. They honor them for, for this honorable behavior. That was the idea there. And then it's up to the community to decide what is, you know, what, what is worthy of that community, what's desirable in that community. The thing that really struck me was, um, this guy's name is Bob. So I say in the book, we need more Bobs. And in point of fact, my little community has five Bobs. I think if we had a reputation and economy in place, we might have 20 Bobs and we would have lots more social good as a result. So that was the idea. How, how could a reputation economy persuade other people to conduct themselves in a more honorable way? So the idea basically being that if we do more honoring, we'll get more honor or more honorable behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are lots mm -hmm. of things that fight that, one of which is you know, gossip and, and malice and all of the, and jealousy and all of the things that prevent even when people do know that somebody has done something good, they are sometimes inclined to criticize them or, or to express their jealousy by diminishing them. You know, people are not always. And so that's what, kind of one of the rules of honor, as I try to define them, um, that, you, that you're really obliged to honor people who do honorable things. And that being nasty and backbiting and gossiping is really not just conduct unbecoming. It's actually destructive of the, of the common good of, a, of your community. I see our present moment, from my perspective, not so much stemming from a, a lack of honor, but perhaps something of the reverse problem that we have been overtaken by a particularly nasty form of honor culture. But before I, I get into that, what do you see as the evidence that this particular age is more lacking in honor than others? What's sort of the historical case as opposed to the case that simply we've substituted 
earlier honor codes that were more certainly more hierarchical in an explicit way for you know for our modern ones and i suppose actually if you don't mind give a little bit of a a background of what that transition looks like and how you see that not just as say a change in our honor culture but a, a diminishing of it in the book i talk about the harvard soccer team which astonished and horrified everybody because they the the male team there's a male and a female team and and the male team created a spreadsheet with which they evaluated the sexual characteristics of of the women's soccer team and so this is sort of conduct unbecoming right this is you think about the harvard of another time 400 years ago 300 years ago 200 years ago there was the university had some sense of moral mission and had some sense that it was helping gentlemen to discover their uh, good behavior and, and what was striking about this instance is that these guys behaved abominably they the, the the university failed to call them to account in any successful way several people on campus just simply ducked their responsibility somebody finally said to these guys you know what some statement of your regret must be offered this community and they agreed to write a letter of apology in the school newspaper and then they declined to sign it and i thought you know, I thought about the, the young journalists working at the school newspaper and their hearts must have been broken by this absurdity, right, of an apology that was going unsigned. So you, you got these, these young men standing up, taking responsibility and refusing to allow their names to be used. It, it so absolutely, anyhow, <laughs> sorry to get on my, my hobby horse, but the point to be made here is that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, several hundred years ago, the crime would not have been committed. A hundred years ago, had it been committed, this, um, it would have, the apology would have been forthcoming. The kids would have been booted out of the school. Consequences would have followed from this very bad behavior. But here we are in the 21st century now watching this behavior happen and, and not seeing the university muster the resolve to, uh, to object in a formal way and to punish in a formal way. I understand the, that particular story and the, you know, the problematic nature of what they did. It's hard for me to get to a place where I necessarily see it as indicative of, say, the past honor codes not tolerating at least as much or, or perhaps more. I think one of the interesting parts of your book, you talk a little bit about military honor codes. Those are honor codes that are still fairly strong, I think, in a traditional way. And they're fairly functional because they do aggressively shame some behavior that harms the institution, you know, like a desertion or going around the chain of command, lack of discipline. Those are, are punished very sharply. But they also have a set of behaviors uh, that, especially during wartime, are clearly vices, but are mostly ignored, smoking, gambling, drinking lightly. And so what the, the military has done is kind of bifurcated uh, what, you know, what is, what is the sort of the honorable behavior that we have to be really rigid about, and then the behavior that's clearly not so lovely but that we're just going to tolerate or ignore. And then in an even more extreme case, military honor codes often have built-in hazing rituals, which have a level of violence that I would say go 
often significantly beyond what, you know, what happened to the women's soccer team, as bad as that was. So how do you kind of square that as the one model of kind of a legacy honor code with a, a more broad story that, you know, that now we're more tolerant of deviations from, from honor? Yeah, I don't think the mil- I don't mean to suggest that the military is the exemplar, uh, the perfect uh, demonstration of how honor can work. I refer to it in the book too fleetingly, I think, um, as as an example of the place that honor went when it was uh, scorned by virtually all of the other institutions on which it had once relied. So, it, in some sense, the military took honor in. It didn't necessarily perform or execute honor codes perfectly, as you point out. There are there are exceptions to the rule that are actually built into military cultures. Hazing would be a great example. But uh, there is still an active honor has an active presence, an active voice in that culture in a way that it doesn't in the rest of the world. And so that was one of the things I was um, uh, laboring to point out is is how that development, I was sort of begin at 1850, but I'm sure that's uh, too late. But my sense is, you know, the cult of individualism, which, which I personally embrace and think well of and take to be one of the great engines of our creativity, I think almost always, as people came up to claim their individual individuality, and their separateness and their difference and their departure from convention, scorned a bourgeois society and middle-class morality, and they made an effort to show their difference. I mean, think about the the avant-garde artists of Paris in the middle of the 19th century, right? They're exerting themselves to scorn and to provoke the bourgeoisie. They see that as part of their artistic mission, because what they're trying, then if we dial forward 100 years, we look at the beat poets, driving back and forth across the country, they too are, you know, they say to Allen Ginsberg, Allen, your, your poetry is too good. It's too rule bound. It's too formal. You have to let loose. And their notion is we must let loose. We must break ourselves out of the prisonhood of bourgeois conformity. That's our job. Um, and with, and I think generally speaking, that's a wonderful cultural experiment. And it gave us access to extraordinary, uh, a great wellspring of, of creativity and, and the innovation that followed from it. But often what it meant was people looked at what they said was to, to claim my individuality, I have to separate myself from a mainstream morality. And they thought of honor as something that belonged to that mainstream morality. So it got shut out of the action. It was seen to be you know, something people cared about if they were stuffed shirts and the captives of a, a formal way of conducting themselves. And effectively, that these pe- the people who cared about honor, and honor itself was seen to be individual effacing, as it were, right? Honor was something that was bad for individuality because it said to any given individual, you know, it forced on them a Christ and Caesar choice. And it said that, uh, you know, that, that what you owe to honor must be paid out of what you can accomplish for yourself as an individual. So I think that's some sense in which people just said, you know, honor is a bad thing if I'm part of the cult of individuality, of hipness, of coolness, of creativity that you see absolutely transform Western societies over the last, you know, 150, 60, 70 years. One of the things that makes it tricky to talk about the topic is that 
you have honor and then you have good or bad behavior. And the, clearly the two overlap, but they're, they're not necessarily the same thing. And, you know, though both of them have to be interpreted through the lens of a, some kind of moral code. I guess what I'm getting at in terms of not necessarily seeing that we haven't just swapped one out for another is perhaps something to do with, you mentioned the, the prison of, of rigid rules or rigidly enforced honor code. I do see a transition away from a particular kind of that. Though to get back to the idea of hazing, that rigid that rigid honor code was upheld to a certain extent by rituals that were way more pervasive that could broadly be termed hazing. Um, and it wasn't just limited to the military. That was, you know, throughout school, throughout sports, throughout uh, a large number of institutions that, you know, what brought you into the fold and got you up to speed with it was often a harshness, right? We, we now frown upon that. So I wonder if to some extent, you know, we yes, we've lost a particular kind of rigid honor code, but in terms of the net bad behavior, if you include violent hazing rituals and bad behavior, you know, how does that net out, I suppose, is an interesting question. Yeah, very much so. On the one hand, we have the rites of passage, the rituals with that are deliberately designed and used to take individuals who feel themselves to be individuals and to fashion some sense of the group um, sufficiently powerful to send them into, into a competition uh, or indeed into battle, right? And, and that's the work that, that that's what the military, that's the job the military needs to get done is to create a sense of groupness so intense that people are now prepared to make a sacrifice for one another. And there's nothing quite like, for all of its horrors, there's nothing quite like a hazing ritual to get that job done for its own, for our own various reasons. And that's just a tragedy, right? So we need to find this is a calls for calls on us to do an act of social and cultural engineering where we find a way to create groupness without using these um, those those methods. Because for certain purposes, we still need group groupness. What you were talking about reminded me of uh, a topic I've heard other people speak about, which is the way in which right now we have more of a performative culture than a formative culture, in that the institutions that we have are not so much concerned with the formation of good men or good women. They're concerned with performing a ritual that looks good from the outside or puts them in a, a nice light to the people they want to be in a nice light too. And the sort of the harshness that comes with formation of any kind, and that certainly doesn't have to be direct violence, but the, you know, formation is a challenging, difficult task for anyone in any subject. And, you know, and often requires, uh, let's just say, a, f a firm hand of one kind or another, emotional, physical, whatever it is, that has gone out of favor, in, I think, in, in lieu of something that is more like we are performing the role of whatever it is, and we want that to be visible on Instagram or wherever as something that scans immediately to the eye as, oh, that's great. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the, for somebody studying, trying to do, as I am, the anthropology of contemporary culture, that's one of the things that really strikes you is the extent to which people, all of us, engage in performance behaviors now routinely. I've talked to 
people who have said to me that they don't know whether they had fun on Saturday night until they see the Instagram stream that records the event. And they don't say that they've had a good time on Saturday night unless they looked good, right? More, more better to look good than to have fun. And that they wanted the exact, the best, the photos that showed them to best possible effect. This is interestingly has had some huge implications, including the diminishment of alcohol consumption. And, and, and what's driving that is this performance culture where people say, look, I just can't afford to have a bad photo of me out there floating around, right? I can't be seen to be drooling and, and insensible. Uh, that would damage the, the, the personal brand I'm trying to create with this performance behavior. So that stuff is totally indifferent to matters of goodness and badness. I'm, uh, to the extent that I'm a libertarian, I'm keenly interested in this idea of leaving to community, to individuals and com communities, leaving to them to decide what honor is. I don't want to be the moral exemplar. I don't want to say you must do X or Y or not do X or Y, or this is what goodness is. This is what badness is. I just say, listen, we want to have a reputation economy that it inspires behavior we all believe to be good. We want to have an internal code that gives us clarity and gives us comfort. And, but you choose as the individual, you decide what creates that for you. Uh, what is the stuff of your internal honor? So that's my attempts to, I mean, I think libertarians, if I presume to speak for it, all of them, have a problem to the extent that they're prepared to just turn everybody loose, right? And they just say, people will do what they do. And, and the social world will be the, the kind of rising accumulation, the effects of these various behaviors will give us as much institutional order as we need. But in point of fact, what we don't want is a social world that works top down, where elites or some organizations or some institutions say, this is what your life must be. Libertarians sort of are appalled by that idea. But that leaves, I think, the libertarian unable to guarantee or at least encourage certain kinds of good behavior. You know, what keeps a libertarian from looking at, the, at um, uh, uh, an entertainment executive in New York City who preys upon interns? Right. We need some way of saying that's objectionable. You know, I use the instance in the book and I quote the, one of the women so preyed upon and the results are heartbreaking. So it's not difficult to see that that's objectionable behavior, right? But formally, how do we insist that it's bad behavior uh, and how do we punish the people who engage in it? That, that seems to me as a particular libertarian problem. I like the idea of the sort of decentralized systems of, of honor codes and how let them compete, right? That's what markets are best uh, at is, is surfacing the best things. I, what you're talking about is related to a transition I've had in my own thinking about just those kind of issues. My own, my own bias as a libertarian-minded dude is that I generally prefer a kind of bourgeois shopkeeper values ethics, which is that, you know, a, a guy comes into your shoe store, he wants to buy a pair of shoes, you don't care whether, you know, he's straight or gay, black or white, whatever religion he has, he wants to try on a pair of ladies' shoes, whatever. If he has the money, I don't care about any of that. I also don't care about whether his wife is a good person, whether they're raising their kids right. You know, I that would be my preferred system. That is, from my perspective, very much 
not the system that we're in right now. I see a revival of the kind of honor systems that put a high emphasis on reputational contagion so that you are not even allowed to associate with people who've been shamed. And there's not really even a, a place of redemption. And and then there's also a kind of... Um, Old honor codes had a way in which there was kind of skin in the game for both parties, and that diminished to some extent your, you know, your willingness to want to shame another person. So, for example, I'm now in the South, and the South ha- is nice in some ways. You bump into someone, you're both very kind about it. Oh, sorry about that, whatever. Not so much in the North, and I see that, um, and maybe I'm wrong about this or not, but I see that as a byproduct of being in a place where if you, where those kind of little things, if they weren't taken care of at a minor level, could turn into something that was literally a duel at one point or, you know, a, a tit-for-tat revenge where people died. And so there was there was an incentive for both the person who wanted to call someone out for a lack of honor for bumping into them and for the, you know, the person who had bumped into them to both be as gracious as they could be and as as much as possible interpret what had just had happened as not that much of a slight, and only if things raised to the level where it was clear that the other person was, you know, taking off their glove and slapping them in the face, would, you know, would they be backed into a corner where it was like, okay, you know, now it's on, my honor demands that I, you know, that I retaliate. Uh, But when you don't have that, it's much easier to have at a low level, perhaps, a kind of viciousness and and nastiness. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? When I started looking at bad behavior in contemporary culture, I was reminded of the, my, in graduate school, I, I was studied uh, Elizabethan England. And so I got to see a culture that was acutely aware of honor of the kind you're describing. So that was sort of part of the work of the book is to say, how do we take the, the notion of honor and get rid of these various effects and motives and anxieties and cruelties um, that attended attended it in the uh, 16th century. How do we uh, and 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 purify it, as it were, or clarify it? And in the Elizabethan case, it's certainly true that people were fantastically quick to take umbrage at the behavior of somebody, and that behavior could be merely that they refused to re- take off their hats with sufficient kind of uh, deference. And so you had a status-anxious community constantly roiled by the appearance that people were giving too little honor, which is what makes court society so deeply obnoxious. Uh, my wife and I were watching a Kate Winslet uh, movie last night, the title of which escapes me, but it's about a court society. And and the courtiers just despise themselves because they spend all of their time bowing and scraping and hoping that they're producing enough deference to honor the monarch because God help them if they're just a couple of increments shy of what the monarch thinks is appropriate deference. So that's just stupid and and appalling. So I w- was trying to create a, um, um, a kind of trying to decant honor, as it were, to create something that didn't come with this social baggage. The other thing about honor in the Elizabethan case and, and is that you really didn't have a shot at honor 
uh, there was this great distinction between the gentle world and the vulgar world. And, and if you were on the, the high side, you had honor and you cared about honor and you got honor as uh, you, you got lots of honor just for having been lucky being born into the right family. If you were below the division, you were, you were scorned. And there was nothing, you know, even as late as the 18th century, they were saying that people uh, who were not of a gent gentle classes, so to speak, were, couldn't be scientists because they were morally untrustworthy and they had no honor. And so they would just fake their results. So astonishing to think how punishing the honor code was in that circumstance. So that was part of the work of the book is to say, how do we get rid of the bad stuff? Do you know the historian Thaddeus Russell wrote the renegade history of the United States? No. Very interesting person. And one of the ideas that he draws out in that book is that there's a freedom in not having honor or not being perceived to have honor. So he writes about the ways in which you have these cultures that are stigmatized and devious and deviant from the perspective of that high society that you're describing. And then as a result of that, perhaps they are liberated because they, there's no expectation of morality from them. Uh, the most extreme example perhaps being slaves who, you know, on the one hand were put under the most awful conditions imaginable, and on the other hand were not expected not to, you know, to be virtuous in the sense that there was no moral expectation of them whatsoever. And so they developed their own forms of language and of music and dancing that would have been absolutely scandalous if it were performed by people who were in honorable company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, which means you turn part of your culture into an, a, a laboratory. I mean, you could say, yeah, well, I guess we do have to say that the presence or absence of honor creates different cultural codes for innovation. And, and one of the markers of the cultural code for innovation for high society is this extraordinary constraint, that the individual is paying this very high price for their moral standing. And anybody who watched Bridgerton got to see that honor code in play. This is Shonda Rhimes' magnificent rethinking of, uh, of a court society and where you know kissing someone in the garden um, without a chaperone was the end of your social reputation, right? In that moment, in the moment of detection, your social standing was extinguished and you were no longer an honorable creature, right? You can imagine the kind of the sheer panic uh, and anxiety and, and self-surveillance self that takes place when, when people are preoccupied with the loss of this thing on which their standing so depends. And I see that as back to where we are here in which I see some elements that, you know, that I'm not so happy with and that I do see as related to the honor culture. Maybe I can do a a better job of explaining the, that concept of the asymmetry that I see and the ways in which honor culture is, um, seems toxic right now. Maybe do, I'll do an example, um, not in your book, for, but something that just happened here. We're recording this not long after a, a video went viral of a female basketball player who uh, showed off that her dressing room for the women's basketball team at the NCAA tournament was, not dressing room, weight room, was much smaller than the men's. Did you happen to see that? I did not. No. 
at any rate, she she got a video to go viral that was basically, here's our dressing room, uh, here's theirs. And she succeeded in shaming the NCAA into giving the women a a much bigger space. Uh, I suppose you could see this as a, a triumph of honor and shame as a, a, a player, I think Sidonia Prince is her name, who's able to essentially say, you know, you've dishonored us. This is shameful how you're treating us. You need to restore our honor and make things right. So that's one way to look at this. But I don't see it as unambiguously positive. I actually see two distinct pathologies here that I'll do my best to explain. But first, I, I do see the the perspective of the player of Sidonia. She feels dishonored. She feels shamed by this tiny weight room. But from my own moral sense, her behavior looks like ungratefulness, the kind of behavior that older honor cultures in the South, they might have called that behavior ugly in the sense that here you've got a woman who's given a full-ride scholarship at a Division I school to play a game she loves but that no one else really cares about and that is almost certainly a large net money loser for her college. Maybe the real shame is that people don't find women's basketball all that exciting, but that's the reality. Uh, There's a good case to be made, in my opinion, that the NCAA is a cartel which exploits men on scholarships at top basketball schools who could get uh, nice salaries for those skills. But Sidonia, she's on charity. She's what one might not so charitably call a, a parasite. But I don't like that terminology because I don't like the honor stuff much at all. So I just say that her complaining looks like whining. But I don't want her to be canceled or shamed for it. I prefer that we have a colder approach and ignore the complaint or point out the economic realities and and move on. Like, how would you reply to a junior salesperson who complained that a rep who was bringing in millions of dollars a year got a nicer office, right? So that's one part of the complication I see here. The other part has to do with the asymmetry of the shaming and the accusation. So even if you say, you know, it was dishonorable for the NCA to give the women's team a smaller workout room, um, and it was much smaller, suppose for a moment she had been wrong and this was a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding. It was a dressing room, not the full-fledged weight room. I'd note that First, that her video would still have gone viral since those videos aren't really verified before passing along, and even journalists don't seem to do verifying. So either way, Sidonia, the player, she raises her profile and is admired. She's given esteem and honor for this action of calling them out, and there's no downside to her. There's no shame to her if she's wrong. So we've gotten to this place where there's a high incentive to call out, to cancel, to shame certain institutions, especially if it fits a particular narrative. But then there's no reciprocal skin in the game in that sense that I was talking about, where Sidonia herself would be you know, punished in the public imagination or shamed if she tried to call them out and in fact was wrong. Do you see what I'm saying there? I, I do. I do. And it's a real issue. I, I, I guess the public world these days appears to be 
deeply preoccupied with any opportunity to find somebody guilty of bad behavior and to call them out and to insist on their, uh, that they'd be kind of pilloried and, and perhaps even canceled, removed from the public domain. And if the motive for this behavior, when the motive for this behavior is genuinely to create better behaviors from the individual and from the collectivity, I say it's good. When the motive is, as I think perhaps too often it is, to to create a you know a, a contretemps to 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 engage you know the the point of the exercise is not to criticize and then cancel the point of the exercise for certain purposes is to cancel it doesn't look as if people are seeking a longer term goal it doesn't look as if they're seeking the creation of a social good for the individual or the collectivity there's something gleeful and and willful and damaging about it so that the individual who presumably one hopes has moved on if they're detected to have seen, said something sexist or racist or classist uh, 20 years ago that's enough you know to set off the firestorm and it feels as if the point of the exercise is the firestorm and the cancellation that follows from it which is is not the way you create a better culture Right? You don't create more honor from that. What you do is put the fear of cancellation in everyone, and they're less forthcoming about the discussions with which they contemplate how they could act in a more intelligent, thoughtful, generous way. And in fact, you, you create, you know, people have used this metaphor before, but there, there's, there's, something, there's, a, there's, there's something of the mob in, uh, you know, this is pitchforks and, and burning torches. Uh, this is people taking pleasure in the act of criticism, and there's no evidence that they hope that this act of criticism will reform the individual. They just want to eviscerate them. And there's no evidence that they want to create a social cultural good. They just want the bonfire. I may be wrong, I agree with that completely. I've spoken before with people. It's been kind of a harsh wake-up for me uh, in terms of seeing this, but I think we're in an era of mob action, and that I don't know that there's any way to, at the moment, diminish that. The combination of technology and maybe other longer-term trends have created a system where one person's actions can very quickly spread a message, a hashtag, an idea, a narrative to a group that is highly passionate and they will pick up pitchforks. And that's just the nature of it. So I, I very much see that that we're in a place where a lot of behavior, and I think actually a lot of that kind of mob shaming and attempting to dishonor is not stigmatized or and this may be one of the nuances, it's not stigmatized internally. So I think maybe to compare it to the past, if I was out with a bunch of guys in college and we got a little rowdy and you know we smashed up something or whatever, I ended up in a mob, let's just say. The next day, I would come back and talk to other people and be like, oh man, I really, I got out of hand. I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't right. But we have a situation now where 
mobs can form very, very quickly. And because of filter bubbles or whatever, the people who are part of that mob can come back home and and be surrounded, virtually surrounded, by people who will tell them that it was fine to smash those store windows because you're doing it for a good cause, and everybody around you is doing it for a good cause, and you never have to leave the confines of that sort of, in this case, the virtual mob that reinforces what is almost certainly bad behavior. Yeah, no, in fact, I mean, I, I didn't think about it this way at the time when I was writing the book, but I was aiming for the creation of an honor culture. And what's happened the last few years is the creation of a dishonor culture, right? That's all about the act of negation and destruction, but apparently not much interested in inspiring honorable behavior. So that's that might be one way of, of talking about how the book relates to our preoccupation now with, you know, with vigilance and criticism. I think that's a, a good way to put it and perhaps a, a, I could see see the full overlap there between us and seeing this as a, a kind of dishonor culture where the focus is on that. It's not so much on the lifting up, it's on the tearing down or on, and I think you do mention this in the book, a kind of zero-sum game view of honor where it's not based on uh, a meritocracy or achievement where one person can achieve one thing and I can achieve something different and we're both honorable, but on a, a place where my honor depends on slighting you or taking you down, where Sidonia gains honor or prestige through certain eyes by, by taking on the NCAA, which maybe is a good thing, maybe is a bad thing, but her honor is won through destruction, not through through building up. And I think there's actually, to take that even a bit further, I think there's something about the culture right now that that almost demands that it happen that way in the sense that Sidonia could have taken approach of, you know, well, maybe you guys overlooked us, maybe this. She could have taken, let's just say, a constructive approach that wasn't focused on, I'm going to shame you guys into doing the right thing. Now, I don't know that that would have worked, you know, setting aside whether you think that what she did should have worked in a a moral sense, uh, that it was justified. But we seem to be at a moment where the approaches that work the best, that are the most effective, are based on a presumption that this is going to be a zero-sum game and that I'm going to raise my my honor by by shaming uh, someone else. I think one expression of this might be what the practice that apparently happens in anti-racist training sessions, where they begin by asking uh, participants in the session to say that they are a racist. Um, And I wrote a piece, you can find the reference uh, about this, in which I said that there's something very wrong with asking people to say that they're racists, uh, unless, of course, they are racist. That's a different matter. But somebody who is good-hearted and has made an effort effort to uh, conduct themselves with dignity and with honor to insist that they take this position and and to insist that they say that they're uh, racist is I, I think an exercise in 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 negation and punishment that uh, does not advance the cause and I, I don't I, I think anti-racism training is a good idea racism is is like a liquid right it, it gets into everything it gets into the nooks and crannies of a corporation, it gets into the micro behaviors 
and so it makes sense for people to sit down and say, so how does racism live in our corporate culture? But to ask people to say that they're racist when they're not seems to me the creation of a dishonor culture when, when what we're looking for is the creation of a, an honor culture. It's interesting. It makes me think about, and I've heard those things uh, compared to struggle sessions, the kind of communist sessions where people would all be put into a room and demanded to, you know, to denounce themselves and confess their sins uh, to the group. But it occurs to me thinking about this, that viewed through a different light, that is almost just a different form of a hazing ritual, an aggressive portal that you have to walk through. And the only way to get through the door is to debase yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I mentioned at the beginning that you uh, might be working on a time machine. Can you, what is that about? <laughs> um, I, I haven't had any uh, luck actually building the machine. It, I, I, I did a course at MIT called Time Machine, and I think the students were, were disappointed that we didn't actually build a machine, which is, of course, what MIT is for. My notion was, listen, we can't ever get out of the present into the future. Un- unless there are physics we don't know about, we can't do that. But we can pick up the earliest signals, the smallest signals, the tiny murmurs of worlds to come. And if we get better cultural and social lenses, if you want, or diagnostics or, or systems, pattern recognition detection systems, if you want, that allow us to say, oh, that is a signal, that's something, or it might be something, and let's tra- track it and, and watch it, if it does, scale up, and then make a decision about, which my notion is all of us live in a world of turbulence and great commotion and disruption and the world speeding up. So that, what I'm aiming for is a time machine, so-called, that gives us earlier notice. So an early warning or detection system, something like that? So one case in point here, and it's kind of, well, it's um, that uh, we know that there was an extraordinary trend that ran through North American culture in the form of the artisanal revolution that was ignited by a woman called Alice Waters. And she has a little restaurant in Northern California. And in 1971, she opens a restaurant. Thousands upon thousands of other restaurants are, are opened that year, but hers is the one that actually signals the start of a revolution that transforms the way Americans think about food and eating and restaurants and all of that stuff eventually. The, the name of the game here is, at what point after 1971 could you see that this restaurant was different from all other restaurants? And when could you begin to establish metrics and measures that would allow you to show this little restaurant was having this influence. And one example here would be, the easy example here would be Alice Waters trained a succession of chefs and they acted like a diaspora that spread out across North America so that Portland, I think it was 81 or something, had a little Chez Panisse, right? And it was much scorned by people living in, did I say Portland? I meant uh, Pittsburgh. Which did I say? You said Portland, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Pittsburgh. Uh, had a little Chez Panisse, so they had another name for it. But that was an example of the of this notion colonizing the restaurant world and transforming the tastes and preferences of, of American restaurant goers to the point that we actually had a term foodie 
establish itself in our culture. And you don't know that half of Americans now are prepared to identify themselves as foodies. It's astounding. Anyhow, the, that trend actually also helps transform the world of, um, of spirits, of bars and alcohol. And um, it, it ran into the world of bars and restaurants. And it provoked, what was happening was the chefs would finish a shift they would come in and and talk and put their feet up at a bar and start talking to the bartender. And the bartenders went, artisanal? We could do something like that. Let's call it mixology. And, and so they did. Um, but the first thing they did, after you were bit by the mixology bug, the first thing you did was buy a bottle of, spirit, of uh, bitters, which you now needed to mix the kinds of drinks that identified you as a mixologist. So that would have been beautiful data. Right, you would have seen that data spike because nobody cared about bitters for several decades. So the data would have spiked just sales sales volumes, SKU data. But then you could have, if you had this kind of data, you could have seen it spike in San Francisco and and in New York City and only eventually in Portland. Right, you could have seen it kind of scale up just using that stream of data. You could have used it to detect a future coming. So anyhow, that's the idea: is to get. I call it the Griff, <laughs> but it's this device for spotting all of these little changes, most of which will disappear without a trace, but some of which will eventually scale up to be the future. And the, the, my big challenge, and this is why I'm hoping you or a listener can help here, people who know uh, how to access this data could, uh, you know, I'd love to work with them to, to begin this, building this uh, detection system or more grandly called this time machine. Got it. I so I I do have um, experience looking at data and trying to tease out. Um, I, saw, faint, I saw that you had. That's why yeah. this is sort of a pointed. Uh... <laughs> All I'll say is that I I find it both um, you know a, a fascinating intellectual exercise, but in part I think that's because it's extraordinarily hard to tease little bits of trends and data out of these disparate trends. Like it's a combinatorics problem too, right? Which are the which are the signals that group together and how do you know that they're the ones that, like in retrospect, clearly the rise in the sale of bitters was related to this broader, you know, foodie trend that also had these other specific indicators, perhaps, you know, the rise in the sale of one kind of more uh, non-mainstream lettuce than another, right? I'm just making things up here, but like, how do you how do you pull those out and know that they're related signals kind of in an a priori way in retrospect clearly they are right but you know both both yes both very fascinating and uh, very very challenging what an uh, anthropologist brings to this exercise is ethnography as it's called where you just go into the bar and you sit down with the bartender and you say well, what the hell is going on here and that's you know, I've done some work for Netflix and they insist on solving their problems from the data alone. And I have to keep reminding them, you know, just sit down with the people watching TV. They will tell you why this show was compelling. They will tell you why this and not that. Uh, and, and, and then go back to the data. But anyhow, it feels like there's an opportunity for some, uh, I don't know if you can see it over my right shoulder. There's a, an image can you see an image over my right? I, I see a table of some kind, but I can't see any of the text That's on the it. Grip. Those are oh. all the things I'm monitoring. <laughs> okay, that's quite a bit. It so many years ago, I I did a one issue comic book that was 
based on a very, very loose version of myself, someone who had gone into stats, but they were kind of a, a version of like a detective, but in particular, an investing detective who sought to find the difference between official information and information on the ground. So they would do that kind of, I guess, you, from your perspective, anthropology or whatever, where they would investigate what was really happening when they talked to the owners of restaurants and, you know, and, and franchisees and whatever, and tease out of that what was really happening in terms of trends and changes in preferences, just by kind of being on the ground and getting it before it ended up as a column in the New York Times culinary section, say. Yeah, that's fabulous. No, exactly. And there's so much, you know, there's so much change afoot and and so many small murmurs out there that this is, I think, it's just a, a really very interesting time to be looking at the social cultural world. It's just, you know, it's like, you know, in a rain, where you're standing by a body of still water, like a, a, a lake, and it starts to rain, right? And you can see the vibrations being set off by all of these individual raindrops. It's kind of the way our culture feels to me now, right? Right? There's tiny perturbations taking place. And none of those, uh, this is why this is a bad metaphor, will actually sync up to become, right, a larger movement. But you just get that sense that there's so many possibilities as we finish up here, it seems to me that maybe you could talk a little bit about your upcoming book, and I think that ties into some of those artisanal themes. Yes, yes, Th thanks. It's called The Return of the Artisan. It'll be published by Simon & Schuster. We thought this summer, but I think it's now going to be next summer, and it's an attempt to look at uh, the culture and the economy that the artisanal movement has created. So I spend a lot of time talking to people in farmers markets across the country, uh, across the US especially, and talking to people who are artisans um, or who are chefs or who are somehow participants in the shift that says, you know, after World War II, people were enamored of our efforts to effectively industrialize food, right? Food was shelf stable and it was packaged and prepared and sitting in the middle of the supermarket. And increasingly we said, oh my God, fresher is better, Un unadulterated is better. We don't want preparation. And we want, uh, and, and that notion that the world should, should be handmade and small batch and made by somebody we know and, and purchased in a moment that's part social and also economic, um, we've really changed some of the fundamentals of American North American capitalism and the way our economy works to on the production side as in, in the creation of a new set of goods which come to the market in new ways that end up kind of helping to create uh, to in some sense, fund a new way of eating and, and living. You've got something like artisanal families and artisanal communities. Just a few years ago, those were people who insisted on wearing Birkenstocks and putting up wall hangings. And, you know, you were a special or particular kind of person. And now it's sort of virtually, you know, as I was saying a moment ago, 50% of Americans think about themselves as foodies. So that artisanal impulse, let's call it, has filtered through American culture with uh, extraordinary thoroughness and really changed us from a, an industrial society to a, a post or, or even an industrial anti-industrial society. There'll always be this industrial piece, but increasingly it's the back end. 
um, that we can conceal from view and everything else is human scale and handmade and small batch and all of that. So um, that's the point of the book. Could I also forgive me this additional moment of self-promotion? Could I also just, just say that I'm teaching a culture camp in May and, uh, and I'd be thrilled if listeners would consider uh, coming uh, to it. It'll be online. I don't, um, the website is, uh, if you go to culture.camp, you'll see the website for a previous iteration of this culture camp. And if I'm, if it's okay with you, Matt, I'm happy to give you my email or to say my email and invite people. Go for it. Okay. So it's grant27 at gmail.com. So just send me a note, say you're interested in the culture camp, and uh, I will keep you apprised of the details. Excellent. Looking forward to that and very much to the new book when it comes out. Thank you. Yeah, I will certainly send you a copy. And thanks. So let's keep talking about the time machine. <laughs> Great. Excellent. Grant, thanks for coming on the filter. Thank you, Matt. Real pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.